Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comics conversation show. John Suntris here. A great conversation today with podcaster Mark Malkoff, who does an incredible podcast called The Carson Podcast, all about The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, its long history, its impact on the culture. Malkoff speaks to some incredible guests, not just the celebrities, so many comedy writers, the talent bookers, the guy who pulled the curtain for Johnny for over 20 years. Real interesting insight in the history of The Tonight Show, which was an institution, water cooler television. Did you see Johnny's monologue last night? Can you believe what he said about Watergate? There's a great documentary about uh, The Carson Show that is streaming on Amazon Prime and Netflix. It was a PBS special. In a couple weeks, Hulu is about to present a show called Here's Johnny, which takes place right after the show moved from New York to Burbank. And it's the point of view of uh, a young person on the crew of The Tonight Show. We talk a little bit about that with Mark. But also, we just kind of examine Johnny Carson, and Johnny Carson as a comedian and as a talk show host. I mean, obviously, uh, from what I do here, uh, not only in podcasting but in radio, I've always been fascinated by those incredible broadcasters that uh, really can just do great interviews and be entertaining. And, God, in the case of Carson, five nights a week. Uh, I know he would take weeks off. I know eventually he got Mondays off. But, again, the guy for 29 years was out there just doing it. And he and, like, David Letterman and even uh, their predecessors, Steve Allen and Jack Parr, the people that came after Jay Leno, certainly the Jimmys, and uh, Conan O'Brien and Steve uh, Steve Colbert, all these people are just fascinating. And it's really great to uh, get a show like Mark's that uh, really goes into how The Tonight Show was made, but uh, also the celebrity guest point of view. Uh, it's really a great show and shows you how important, I think, of a cultural touchstone The Tonight Show was for the last third of the 20th century. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Mark Malkoff talking about The Tonight Show and Johnny Carson on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thanks a lot, League, for your support. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, uh, both listening and, of course, if you subscribe via Patreon. Uh, you don't have to do that, but if you can spare it and you think Word Balloon is worth your while with the episodes I give, is it, is it worth the price of a comic book, as I always like to say? If you think so, uh, go to patreon.com slash wordballoon or click on the Patreon ad at wordballoon.com. But uh, thank you very much for your support. League of Word Balloon listeners, uh, I saw some new subscribers again this week, and uh, really, every, every bit means a lot. So let's get into our conversation about Johnny Carson with Carson podcast host Mark Malkoff on Word Balloon. Mark Malkoff, welcome to Word Balloon, and congratulations on a really fun podcast, the Carson podcast, all about the history of The Tonight Show and Johnny Carson. Welcome. John, thank you so much for having me. Hey, man, I can tell from uh, the tone of your show that we kind of uh, are fascinated by uh, broadcasting and broadcast history. And uh, I am one of those people that grew up uh, admiring The Tonight Show and Johnny Carson and the facility he had to engage these celebrities in conversation and also the real people as well. But I'm going to ask you what you always ask is your last question of your guests. Who is Johnny <laughs> Carson and what does he mean to you? As Steve Martin said, he was probably more famous than the president of the United States. He he was so funny, charming, and engaging, and he could talk to anybody. I mean, he was a, a guy that could talk 
to A-list celebrities. He could talk to civilians who had never probably been out of their small towns that are suddenly in a studio in Burbank and make them feel completely at ease. He, he was an entertainer. He was an intellectual. He was curious. He, 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 he could talk to someone like Carl Sagan, Jimmy Stewart, and then have uh, someone like Tiny Tim. He did not talk down to his guest. He made everyone look good. He hosted his show with with complete class, yet there was a lot of mystique on who he was and went on, what went on behind the scenes of The Tonight Show. And that's that's really why I started the Carson podcast, which is I had all these questions, and there was so little reading material about what really went on with The Tonight Show and people's experiences going on and behind the scenes so yeah johnny to me was just uh, uh, one of the the best probably i'd say the best person that was ever behind the desk by far just in terms of his his wit in terms of his his intellect and just as a a broadcaster i I don't think there was anyone that has ever been better yeah and consistently great shows and um we're seeing it now that uh, they're showing the full episodes in syndication and i'm glad they're doing that because I felt in the, the 90s and 80s when they did the Carson comedy classics and we'd really mostly just get the sketches, you didn't really get a feel of, of Johnny at his best. I mean, the sketches, they were hit and miss. Let's let's be honest. At least that's my opinion on the sketches. I shouldn't impress my opinion on you. But, uh, you know, and also I think as we learn over the years, some of his characters, it's like, you know, Aunt Blabby, it's like, yeah, I think Jonathan Winters kind of had a little problem with Aunt Blabby and, uh, you know, Maud Frickett. It's so funny because no one – I don't think anybody publicly ever called him out <laughs> on any of that. And maybe they were afraid of their bookends. But it's clear, um, yeah, Jackie Gleason and other yeah, other yeah. In- individuals. I Yeah, I don't think people tuned in. Like I know people loved Karnak, which Steve Allen Absolutely. believed was taken from, from him. And Carson thought that was ridiculous and said it was an old vaudeville routine that lots of people did but i don't think anyone was really tuning into this the sketches i think people were tuning in just for him and yeah. he, they people were, would tune in for him and it's just incredible and the only two people in broadcasting that i can think of in the last i don't, I don't know 50 60 years that have gone this long without any serious competition are johnny carson no one even came close to dethroning him and Lauren Michaels with Saturday Night Live. No yeah. serious competition for either of them for, for decades. I mean, Johnny did 29 and a half, almost 30 years. And Lauren's, Lauren Michaels has been going since 1975 of October. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's just really um, incredible what Johnny pulled off with ease. Agreed. He, he made it look easy. Exactly. He did make it look easy. And again, it's that, that well-oiled machine of The Tonight Show. And uh, in 1983, I believe, was my year. And you've got access to the archive, and you can confirm it. But I did get to see one live taping of The Tonight Show. And it was Charles Grodin and Victoria Principal were the guests. And um, and then also, they told us that they were going to show a, a pre-taped uh, stand-up uh, bit from a comedian that I had never heard of at the time. And it was fun going through the archive and looking it up. And it, uh, we didn't get to see him live. Again, it was pre-taped, but they showed Jerry Seinfeld doing stand-up. So I, I had no idea I when I came home to watch the show who the comedian was. But it's funny to realize that Groden was fantastic. It was one of his, you know, usually great appearances on the show. Always dry and always a real funny, you know, go between between the two of them. And Victoria Principal was lovely, and you know, Dallas at its uh, at its peak as far as that goes. And I also remember she came in a black Trans Am that had like Gib Four 
a license plate because she was with Andy Gibb. One she of the did the show. Uh, uh, brothers, go on. Yeah, she did the show ten times, I believe, with with Johnny, and then Charles Grodin was under contract for a while because Carson only wanted him to do their show exclusively. And then, so what you're saying, I never heard of this. So they normally the show was done uh, live to tape, but what you're saying is they pre-taped Seinfeld and then they showed it to the audience. Yeah, they that did. was pre-taped. Well, well, that's the weird thing. I think Grodin went long, and I th- oh. and again, and this is my this is my spotty memory of the uh, um, experience, and then what I saw on TV, and then also further looking up the episode because during during Johnny's monologue, he mentions the Falkland Islands. Now I don't know if you know what the Falkland Islands were, but it was this early. 80s uh, international war between Great Britain and one of its uh, colonies in um, oh god and I'm and now I'm forgetting where the Falkland Islands actually are geographically but one of their colonies and their main output was was sheep they were all they had a bunch of sheep farms and uh, so it was just this crazy thing of this like sheep farm economy up against the fighter jets of the British you know Air Force and even Johnny in his usual way oh, it's, uh, it's like a comic opera and he's like oh, who uh what was that uh, Marx Brothers movie uh, where Groucho was the head of Fredonia? And I couldn't help myself. I screamed out, Duck Soup. He's like, yeah, Duck mm-hmm. Soup. That's right. <laughs> and immediately an NBC page was on my ass and like, you scream out one more time and we're kicking you out. And I'm like, no problem. <laughs> normally they would take people out. I'm glad you got a warning. That's all you got. Because yeah, normally too. they would they, – they were sticklers about that. That's I'm so glad you got to see the show. I got to be in the studio. I was too, I was too young to see the show. You had to be 16. I was like 12, I think. Okay. Uh, so I got to I got to at least see the curtain and see see the set. But um, I love that you that you were there. I love your show with uh, Jimmy Brogan when you were, when oh, you were touring yeah. the studio and everything. And Jimmy yeah. was the head writer for uh, for Leno for a time and was just kind of taking you through the the hallways and the little catacombs and the underground stuff of uh, of uh, Burbank and uh, the original Carson Studio. I had been back there many times, but I'd never been over there with someone that had done this show so many times. And I am I feel fortunate that Jimmy and I did this because I don't know if you know this, you, you probably do, but the, the studio has been completely renovated. All the seats have been pulled out and they're making it into some sort of, it's like a live gaming event. I know the gaming is really huge. So they basically gutted the studio. So I'm so glad that Jimmy and I had that time where we could go in the studio and Jimmy said, you know, this is where I stood. And we went um, in the green room, which is underneath the bleachers. Um, I, I, I'm guessing I'm still hoping Johnny's old office is still there. But yeah, Jimmy and I went into Johnny's old office, which Jimmy then just told, told me it was Jay's, it became Jay's office. And uh, it's, it's really incredible to be in Johnny's old office because they, they there's footage that exists uh of it and it looks pretty much the same cool that's amazing when you say gaming are you talking about like online gaming or like esports or dungeons and dragons kind of nerd gaming and stuff like that or game show gaming i think it's esports um i I think that they still have the elephant doors up with the murals of of of, uh johnny and that's been there for decades so i think they're still keeping some of the stuff but i'm so glad jimmy and i we're, we're, we're able to do that. NBC Burbank, to me, uh, just walk in those halls. I mean, it's it's incredible, yeah. the history. To me, that place should be a museum. Couldn't agree more. And I, again, remember when we saw the taping, they had they had the fickle finger of fate, which was like kind of an index finger spinning around for, again, people who don't know what I'm talking about, which was a little fun, silly laughing uh, television show award 
that was like, you know, kind of a, a, an excuse for making a joke about some sort of current event. Ah, Richard Nixon, you know, tripped today on the podium. We're giving him the fickle finger of fate or whatever. And, uh, and other kind of broadcast, uh, you know, kind of knickknacks and, and curios from, from broadcast history. You're 100% right. Yeah, my God, the NBC studio. And also, I, I mentioned this in the email, I thought it was a documentary, but I guess coming up in a couple weeks on Hulu, uh, Paul Reiser has produced a kind of docudrama show called Here's Johnny, which talks about uh, the move back in the early 70s when Johnny moved the show from New York to Burbank. I've been reading a bunch and I've talked to some people involved and what it looks, it seems like it's a fish out of water. It's a dramedy with somebody from the Midwest that moves to Burbank and becomes a talent coordinator on The Tonight Show. I think they're 22. And then, yeah, Jeff Sotsik at Carson Entertainment Group is a great man. Uh, He is a producer on it i believe as well and they're going to intercut actual footage from the show into the show and fred de is played by tony danza i know that <laughs> which is crazy but kind of cool uh, he knew him tony danza did the show a bunch he guest hosted the show as well so he knew de cordova that's awesome that's fantastic and yeah of course paul reiser had done the show a few times and i know he's one of the executive producers uh no i'm really looking forward to seeing it and uh yeah i was kind of wondering if you're going to end up having anybody from the hulu show on your show. I would absolutely love that. We'll see what happens. I've reached out to some people. Paul Reiser did the show, I, I, yes. I believe, 18 times. It was something ridiculous. He was so prolific on on that show, on Carson. And uh, I'd love to sit down with him. Yeah, you know, you don't realize sometimes uh, some of the comedians that really, you know, broke through. I mean, I know Reiser's career goes back to the 80s. First thing I saw him in was the Barry Levinson film, Diner. But, uh, yes. yeah, you don't realize that you know, I, Drew Carey is one of the more famous ones of the last group of then young comedians that kind of broke through uh, near the end. But I am always surprised at, like, you know, you hear like a Bill Margo, oh, yeah, I did Johnny a few times and some of these others. And it's like, wow, because, you, you know, you, you remember from the anniversary shows, the reels of the stand ups and Roseanne and Seinfeld and and some of the and certainly God Shandling. Uh, also oh, yes. so close to actually, you know, taking the show over, being offered, I guess, right? Wasn't he offered to... Uh, um... I, there was definitely talk of it. I don't know if they would have actually given it to him, but there was definitely, I believe, discussions. And then there were discussions of him taking over the Dave Letterman slot at NBC. And, he, you know, Shanley said uh, at least once, I think he said it more than once, being on television every single night changes you as a person and not for the, the good. And he he wisely... Um, didn't take it, and he—I mean, the Larry Sanders show to me is one of the greatest comedy shows of all time. It still holds up, and he—he he made the right decision. He absolutely—I mean, Conan did great at twelve thirty. Um, Jay succeeded. I mean, he was number one um, sure. in his time slot, so it, it worked out uh, commercially and profit. The profit. I mean, NBC, the Today Show, and the Tonight Show are the number. Uh, I mean, are the top two money makers. So it worked out for, for for. It seemed like it worked out for everyone. Did you work for a while on Letterman Show? I had a day job for 11 uh, months and 15 days, but who's counting? <laughs> when I was 22, I had, um, yeah, on the eighth floor of the Sullivan Theater, I worked in the audience department. Okay. I was not a page, uh, but I worked up there and I'd be in the studio um, sometimes uh, down there, especially if there's a guest I wanted to see. But, uh, it was definitely an interesting place. I mean, I was such a huge day fan. I mean, I was at the very first show at CBS, cool. August 30th, 1993. I went to the NBC show, Dave's NBC show, five times. Wow, excellent. That's fantastic. Another 
podcast friend of mine uh, who does a comic book podcast, Brian Christman, he uh, he uh, lives in the Pittsburgh area. Or no, well, it's Philadelphia, or it's Pennsylvania. But, you know, like literally such a day fan. He's almost like, uh, oh, I forget what her name was, Mrs. Miller for uh, for <laughs> Murph Griffin and a couple other uh, talk show hosts who would literally like get on the train and go see Dave like 50 or 60 times and managed wow. to get to the final show and has a Worldwide Pants crew jacket that he bought off of eBay and stuff and would wear that in the audience and things. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's funny. They gave us one. I got a pants jacket awesome. for the holidays, which was nice. And it was I think it was one of the last times Dave actually went to the holiday party with the holiday party on stage. And, um, yeah, I mean, I listen, the, 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 when you have a, a show like that, I mean, the host is, they have so much going, a lot of pressure. So I didn't, I, I only saw Dave at the holiday party. If he wasn't on stage doing the show, it was the holiday party. And then I saw him when we took a staff photo, uh, on stage with everybody. And that, I think that was it, but we're, everybody is so isolated on different floors. He was up on the 12th floor. So I, yeah, I mean, 11 months and 15 days, That's a, that, that was uh, the two times that I saw the man. Do you, is he aware of uh, the Carson podcast, Dave? I think he is. I've reached out. He's, um, I, I, oh, okay. I, I heard he was intrigued by it. I have no idea. I'm, I'm, I'm very, uh, I, you know, I, I kind of put the request out there, and then I follow up once in a while and just leave it up to the person. So he, I know he's aware of it, and I, he's definitely on my top uh, top of the list um, in terms of, of uh, if I had to pick like five or ten people who I'd want to talk to, he, he'd be one of them. And I, I think it would go really well. And I think he'd enjoy it. But I don't think he's really doing comedy podcasts. I know he did Norm's podcast, McDonald's, mm-hmm. just because he's friends with him. Yes. But I don't think he does comedy podcasts. Just like Jerry Seinfeld, um, like Mark Maron can get Barack Obama, the president, to be on his podcast. But he can't get Jerry Seinfeld. Seinfeld doesn't do comedy podcasts really either. I hear he you. did Norm's just as a favor. But he, he only does sports and cars. But Seinfeld's also on my list. We shall see. Good luck, man. And hey, hey uh, the amazing people that you have got, Dick Cavett and some of these other wonderful uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. And, uh, you yeah. know, right now I'm calling, t- calling out all these old school names, but these incredible, you know, comedians that were such a big part. And certainly in the case of Carl Reiner, not only on stage, but also kind of a guy that was, you know, one of those few social celebrity friends that Johnny would run into at those uh, celebrity poker games and things that really were just industry. I, when I say celebrity, it was just a bunch of guys getting together and playing poker and Carl and Johnny were part of that, right? That's true. It was Chevy Chase and Steve Martin and Bud Robinson and uh, a bunch of other people. But the thing is, is Johnny does get this thing about that. He didn't, you know, have friends or he wasn't social, but he did the poker game he, he he would talk to on the phone all the time with the amazing Randy. He would go to dinners with Michael Landon, Carl Sagan, Jim Fowler. He uh, he definitely was social, like in retirement, would get together with his former writers. They'd go on the boat together sometimes. They would go to lunches uh, down below Johnny's office. So, I mean, he went to um, – he was really, really close with um, – good friends with Bob Wright, who was the president of NBC, and they would go on vacations. So – I, I, I mean, he definitely was a private man. He would go, he would be by himself a lot in Malibu and on the boat. But uh, I mean, the media, at least as, as somebody that would, would would read about Carson, I they try to just try to play, paint this picture of him as this guy who did not have any friends who never went out, and it, it just wasn't true. He'd be over in, in tennis events. He'd go to Wimbledon. True. He, yes. Yeah. So he he was definitely out and about, but he just. 
I think he valued his his privacy and he led a relatively quiet life. So based on that, because there are so few really uh, good books, and even the ones that are out, I don't know if they're considered good books or not. Uh, Lawrence Lerman, uh, King of the Night, I think is the name of his book, and uh, Bombastic, Bombastic uh, Bushkin, Henry Bushkin, who was Carson's lawyer, released a book a year or two ago. And I heard, and I'm sure you did as well, it's on YouTube, a great interview with, of all people, Joan Rivers, interviewing uh, Bombastic, Bombastic Bushkin and everything about uh, their relationships with Johnny and stuff. Do you think any of these biographies? I mean, w- what are your thoughts on them? Are they, I, mean, are they I have good? no are idea. They, um, tell me. I, I have no idea. I really don't. I read really? the Bushkin book. Somebody gave it to me. Okay. Uh, I, I I have no idea. I heard from somebody that that knows a lot about Carson that he thought most of the stories, if not all of them, were there were true. I, I have no idea. Okay. I read the Lemur book years and years ago, but the, no, none of Johnny's friends. Um, or allies, or I think participated in the book, so I think it's hard to get a balanced, uh, a balanced um, portrait of of who he was with, with that book. I, I honestly have no idea. I mean, uh, in terms of books, I thought Stephen Steve Cox Stephen Cox did a pretty good job. Not a pretty good job. I really really liked his book. Johnny actually gave an interview to him, and it was not there was no gossip or anything about his personal life too much, and uh, I really liked that book. Okay. Okay. Have you ever heard – I found this on um, Amazon, this weird kind of uh, comedy interview or an interview about comedy that Johnny did I think in the mid-60s or late 60s. And it yes. Really, okay. And there was this like kind of comedy theory. And it really is – It's it might be dry to some people. But again, I think people like you and me that really want to like understand maybe where Johnny's comedy came from or his thoughts on comedy, I found it really interesting. He talks about likability. He talks about acceptance. And I just remembered uh, two books that I thought there was some good insight. One is Craig Tennis. He wrote a book called, I think it was called, it's called Johnny Tonight. Craig Tennis was a talent coordinator on The Tonight Show. And then Nora Ephron wrote a oh, book um, about Johnny Carson as well. Wow. And I, uh, I have somebody gave that to me as a gift. So I, I enjoyed those two books. And the Nora Efron book. I, I I think she also writes a little bit about Parr in the book and Steve Allen, but it's mo- mostly Johnny. I'm I glad believe. you mentioned Parr and Allen because I wanted to ask you, in contrast, the predecessors, uh, the people that had the Tonight Show before Johnny. I mean, it, I mean, the Tonight Show was a successful franchise, and each uh, host, as the show evolved, it started with Steve Allen. Steve Allen made its 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 own thing and had really interesting. Uh, theme shows and would have these amazing, you know, jazz acts on. And certainly he broke several, you know, great comedians. Same can be said of Parr. Again, amazing programs sometimes that would just focus on a topic. But uh, he would have, you know, I mean, Bill Cosby uh, broke through on uh, on Parr. And I, I right now I'm, I'm blanking on some other uh, comedians that broke through because of Jack Parr. But, yeah, I mean, these guys really did command their shows. And then Johnny comes along and – you know what do you what do you think uh, what do you think of Allen and Parr as predecessors? Oh goodness! I mean, I think people still are doing Steve Allen bits. I mean, yes. he, all the Dave Letterman stuff. Dave gave him attribution. I mean, Dave, all that, all the remotes and stuff. I think Steve Allen was one of the first, if not the first, to do the remote type pieces uh, that uh, that Dave did so well. And just a lot of the over the top stunty stuff was was definitely Steve Allen. Yep. Um, I, I would say that it, the Karnak. The magnificent uh, bit Steve Allen was doing on his show, a different version of it, and uh, just a really, really smart guy. I mean, obviously Steve, uh, Steve Allen, 
and uh, didn't do the show for that really long compared to everyone else. And then Jack Park comes along and, uh, you know, it, it was essentially could be a podcast. I mean, he was such an intellectual and would really just uh, have these conversations, these in-depth conversations and uh, lots of levels. I mean, he'd have the comedy, he had music, but he'd get really, really deep. And uh, I mean, people would just tune in to see to see what if this guy was just going to melt down on air or what was going to happen. I mean, he was just he would get into feuds with people and he just everybody tells me he was like this in real life. There was no it was not an act. But uh, part I mean, I believe it was four and a half years, something like that. Yep. He wasn't on very, very often. He was at the time one of the biggest things in television at the time. Well, and both of them went on to do. Uh, weekly variety shows. I mean, they stayed with NBC and then, uh, you know, or in the case of, you know, Steve Allen, I think he leapfrogged at a few places, but I think immediately after, and, and in fact, during the Tonight Show, he was doing both a Sunday night show competing with Ed Sullivan and then also <laughs> doing five nights a week and not only doing 90 minutes, but doing that hour 45 uh, show. And maybe, you know, much like uh, I know in the, in the par years, a lot of times, um, and now I'm blank. Hugh Downs would maybe do his his Ed McMahon would maybe do the first exactly. 15 minutes, you know, before, and then finally, you know, they'd walk in. But that's the thing. Back then, the network newscasts were only 15 minutes long at at 11 o'clock you know, on the coast or 10 o'clock here in the in the in the heartland. But you know, they then they turned it over to the Tonight Show. But that's the thing. Yeah, both in the cases of Parr and Allen, they went on to these variety shows, and um, and it's it's interesting because, like you said about Shandling saying that you know the doing that kind of show five nights a week can change you and maybe not for the best. And that uh, I would think that Carson probably, well, they probably needed him at ten thirty, and then maybe there was never any you know consideration of moving Johnny in prime time other than the occasional specials in that. I think Johnny was happy. I mean, he he definitely fought and got and rightfully so lots of vacation time. I yes. mean, it it's so interesting the guest host. Who I mean, oh, Orson yeah. Welles, Kurt Douglas, Burt Reynolds, guest hosting uh, Joe Namath, Arnold Palmer, <laughs> a really interesting cast, Elliot, Bob Crane, people guest hosting yes. The Tonight Show. But I definitely think Johnny knew his, what his strengths were. And I think in terms of him just taking some time and being relaxed that he was the show, he was just going to be better as a host. And back then when there were just three channels, I mean, he could get away with that. I don't think anybody could get away with that anymore being cons doing consistent guest hosts but uh he 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 was able to do it well and also the evolution of the 1030 shows the 1130 shows has been interesting to watch because letterman took it uh, you know and and was able to put uh a, a different spin almost well and certainly when he was on at 1230 um had to because it was kind of in his contract for exactly that it couldn't be similar to the tonight show in a lot of ways and then also, obviously, Conan did his own thing, and it's evolved. And uh, and obviously, Kimmel and uh, Fallon and uh, and Colbert have, are, I think, three really interesting shows now uh, on the three networks. Yes, there's so many, and James Corden, and, and yes. there's a lot of talented people, and a lot of of uh, yeah, a lot of different voices. I mean, back in the day, it was Carson, and then people would try to take him on. Everyone from Joey Bishop to <laughs> Al Alan Thick to Pat yes. Sajak. <laughs> To Joan Rivers, and yeah. nobody came even close to 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 it. I mean, Johnny would have Dick Cavett on after he. I know <laughs> Dick Cavett tried, and it was uh, it was pr pretty incredible. I mean, Johnny is a smart guy, and he knew 
he knew when to get out. Arsenio is definitely a different a different audience who's watching Arsenio versus The Tonight Show. I mean, Carson, you know, they stuck to to an older school of music. Yes. And um, Johnny just hated the Saturday Night Live sketches with Dana Carvey playing him that were penned by Robert Smigel. And he just, you know, he basically said if they're going to make fun of me and uh, with the whole and then he had all this competition that he saw coming his way. Just a good time to get out. Well, and also in contrast to a guy like Bob Hope, and that's been fascinating to learn uh, on your show and other comedy shows about the respect that I think Carson did have for Hope in general. But by the same token, you know, Bob Hope kind of came became that old uncle that you had to be nice to when he came to your living room. But you were like, Jesus, will you get out of here? And, you know, Hope would just spontaneously, I don't know if they were, you might have better knowledge of this, how spontaneous they were when he would walk out and kind of interrupt an, an interview and be like, yeah, you know, I got a special on uh, Friday night. And, uh, and of course, they were ready with the clips, so people knew that it was coming. But, yeah, I mean, it just, and also that they would juice Cope's monologues with Carson laugh tracks. And you could hear Ed McMahon laughing. <laughs> and at first I thought it was, because as I understood it, um, they would tell an audience, hey, stick around. I know the Tonight Show taping is over, but uh, we've got a great surprise for you. Bob Hope's going to come in and, and tape his monologue for his, you know, uh, his upcoming special. So I'm like, oh, maybe Ed's hanging out. Because you, you can't miss that. <laughs> It's true. I I don't remember what guest it was. I thought it was earlier on where a guest told me that that was the case, that they would they would actually uh, I mean, yeah, they would have the audience stay for hope, but then they would sweeten the laughs with the actual tonight show. And you could hear Ed in the background, which is so funny to me. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) And honestly, man, the I love the fact that you're getting so many of the behind the scenes people, not only the obvious comedy writers and God, your Peter LaSalle interview was so fantastic. Oh, I appreciate, I appreciate that. I love Peter. I really, really, truly do. He's a remarkable, amazing man. But you know, one of the and truly one of those comedy geniuses that should be mentioned along with a Lorne Michaels. But he's very quiet about it, and you don't hear his comedy influence. I mean, he worked so hard with Letterman when Letterman uh, came to do the eleven thirty show, and and then of course uh, subsequently uh, Craig. Uh, uh, now I'm blanking. Uh, yeah, Craig Ferguson, Craig Ferguson. He was with Arthur Godfrey. He he was um, right. He goes back to Arthur yeah. Godfrey. Like, my God, you know you're right. But uh, but so so those kind of interviews. But also, you know, the guy who would hold the uh, the curtain for Johnny for 25 or 30 years, whatever it was. Irving Davis. He was really uh, interesting man. And then uh, Don Schiff, who did the cue cards for 30 years yes. for Johnny. I you know I get a, I get emails from from listeners and comments and. Yeah, it's 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 consistent that a, that a lot of the listeners that their 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 favorite episodes are these the behind the scenes people talent coordinators especially are really good and the behind the scenes people I thought Don Schiff was great Ginny Stevenson who was married to McLean Stevenson yes. she's a talent coordinator she was excellent uh, but yeah the behind the scenes people for me as somebody that's interested in this are, are, are a lot of times my favorite guests. Is it like you remind me in terms of uh, the way your show is because it's you having these people on and asking the questions. You're like that reporter in Citizen Kane. <laughs> That's going from person to person. Oh, Who was gosh. this man? I... And, and what I was going to ask was um, it's, you're really like a detective and there's no murder that you're looking for here. But, you're, you know, you're answering this question. Who was Johnny Carson? And I'm imagining that as you interview these people – it's, oh, you know, God, you're talking to all these people. You've got to talk to so-and-so. How many times have guests come up 
uh, based on the reference of a, of a guest you're about to talk to or have just talked to. It definitely happens. It, it absolutely happens. And I think that you're right. There's definitely sort of things that have come up that I, I wonder about. There's a, there was a talent coordinator who started with Jack Parr, and her name was Shirley Wood. Mm-hmm. And a lot of stories are told on the podcast about her. And she was this uh, described as a trailblazer. It was very hard for, for women in broadcasting back then. And she just, I mean, really, really a pioneer and uh, aggressive and amazing at her, her job. And it's definitely kind of putting the puzzle together and who she was and who Johnny was. And a, a lot of the producers behind the scenes, too. Freddie DeCordova is endlessly fascinating as well. Yeah, absolutely. DeCordova, a guy that goes back to the golden age of Hollywood and directed fame infamously uh, Bedtime for Bonzo, the Ronald Reagan <laughs> film, and was with Jack Benny for a very long time as a, as a director. And sounds like uh, he was chosen to... Uh, replace, and I'm blanking on the guy that he replaced, and I'm sure you'll uh, name it as far as a producer, but because Benny kind of re- recommended De Cordova, as I understand it. Rudy Tejas was uh, was there for a while, and he was very popular with the staff, and then Fred De Cordova came in, and, and most of the staff, they dismissed him. I mean, he was just Hollywood glitz. He, Rudy was very hardworking, and Fred was just he. He he was just very Hollywood, but uh, people were very surprised that he stayed. I mean, everybody said Fred was very funny. He could have a mean streak in him, but his ba- basically Peter LaSalle did all the work, and Fred Fred DeCordova was just the charming one, and that's that's the arrangement that they had, and it worked. It was kind of like if you watched Larry Sanders, Rip Torn's character Artie is like half Fred DeCordova and half uh, Peter LaSalle. No, it's interesting, and of course, uh, the King of Comedy movie, Martin Scorsese's film with Jerry Lewis and, and De Niro. Uh, De Cordova basically plays a version of himself in in that, and that's fun to see. And I, what do you what do you think of that film, King of Comedy? Oh, I really enjoy it. And I know they try to get Johnny before Jerry Lewis did the Jerry Langford role. Mm-hmm. They try to get Johnny to do it, and Johnny tried to get De Niro to come on the Tonight Show and said, "If you do 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 the do the Tonight Show, I'll maybe um, I'll do your film." And De Niro wisely, you know, said he didn't think he'd be good. And back then, like, none, no movie stars like that, a lot of them didn't do it. So Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, Meryl Streep. I don't think Meryl Streep ever did The Tonight Show, but mo- most of them never did it. But um, I love the movie. I mean, I thought Scorsese did such a good job with that film. And I love, you know, everyone from Sandra Bernhard to uh, Jerry Lewis uh, to, yeah, Rupert Pupkin with, with De Niro. It's a great it's a great film. And I think today it's even more prescient because uh, – of the whole like uh, sensationalized publicity of outrageous people and and how celebrity is thrust upon them and in fact that ending which can be taken on a lot of levels of is this all in De Niro's deluded mind while he's in prison that he's having this great success I think now if anyone sees King of Comedy and the way it ends not to spoil uh, it's like well of course this guy becomes a celebrity after pulling such a ridiculous stunt. And it's it's really hmm. I think it's it was more of a question when it was created, but I think unfortunately society has kind of given the ending of that movie its own meaning now. Yeah, it's definitely it's interesting to look at certain movies like Network and King yes. of Comedy just in today's light and everything that's that's going on. It's it's so sad to me though, and I and I do get it to to, to I do understand is that. I, I really don't think anybody under, I'd say, 33, definitely under 30, knows who Johnny Carson is, mm-hmm. which is, you know, unless it's it's I Love Lucy or just Seinfeld that's completely, co- constantly being played in reruns, people forget. Uh, um, you know, it's interesting, though. I, I, I've shown, 
I've shown, uh, you know, some people in their 20s uh, Carson clips I've, I've uh, and uh, people that have no idea who he is and uh, people that age love the guy. I mean, when they see him, they have no idea who he is, but he's so likable. Let's pause there. Back with more and Mark Malkoff. More talk about Johnny Carson from Word Balloon. Back to our conversation with Mark Malkoff on Word Balloon. I wonder who really does retain the memory of Carson and and how well these syndicated episodes are playing to a younger audience because, uh, again, it was such an important part of our parents' uh, life. And, again, I mean, I'm old enough being in my early 50s and everything. Yeah, I I grew up with Johnny and, uh, you know, was still watching up till the end. And and it really was such an important – Yes. Well, it was was a water cooler show in the same way that Games of Thrones and some of these – great streaming and cable dramas and even network dramas still are. And that's the it's thing. The Carson, the Carson monologue was the talk around the, uh, you know, hell, even in grade school and high school. Did you see Carson last night? It, it what he said about the Iran war? Stuff like that? Absolutely, man. Jerry Seinfeld said that Dave and uh, Johnny and Dave were event television back then. And it's true. And I, I do want to point out, I get emails from people that are in college and people in their 20s that uh, discovered my podcast that had do that that they knew very little about Johnny of anything that now are like hooked and they love, they love his work. So um, that's really nice to hear when I get those, those emails. But yeah, it's, I think it would be hard for somebody younger to even understand how, how over those shows were back in the day and that, uh, you know, people would go home early. They, you know, they'd excuse themselves from places because, Oh, you have to be in, I want to be home to see the tonight show, the monologue where now, you know, people can just watch it the next morning online. I'm glad there's as many clips as there are on YouTube, and I'm glad that uh, Jeff Sasig and Carson Productions kind of allow those to exist as they do. It's a shame that that first decade, or even longer, uh, you know, from from 62, it was about uh, 10 or 11 years. His first 10 or 11 years mostly uh, don't exist anymore because they would wipe uh, the the videotape because videotape was so costly back then. I mean, it's not just Carson. There are a lot of shows like that that didn't survive because of the economics of, of videotape back then. Yes, it, it's, it's. I mean, Johnny was furious. They wiped the majority. There are kinescopes that occasionally uh, people will will uh, will make aware Jeff aware Jeff Sotsing okay. aware. So there are some. There is footage from uh, I think the earliest thing I've ever seen is '63. Wow! So there, there, there are some things that exist. Um, mostly not whole shows, but segments here and there. I mean, it's bizarre to watch Barbara Walters guest host the Tonight Show in black <laughs> and white in the '60s. Um, I saw a Jerry yeah, Lewis one like that. Yeah, Jerry Lewis. Like yes, that. it's very interesting to see some of the earlier episodes when Carson was in Six B in New York. You know, I've talked to um, people. And corresponded with people that worked on the show in the New York era, and it was very different uh, in New York versus versus Burbank. I I really enjoy both, but there's something that, that was really glamorous about the New York era of the Tonight Show. Couldn't agree more. Well, and, and again, the mystique because so many of them are lost episodes now. And well, like again, the you know New York in the '60s. I mean, God, I mean, and you know, obviously New York is still New York. And I always appreciate when talk shows move back to New York and everything because there is, it's a, it's, there's a great, the two different celebrity coast vibes of New York and LA, they are absolutely different. I know that being in Chicago broadcasting and, and also uh, certainly back then, even though the country was connected coast to coast by, uh, you know, microwave and, and, and television and everything, uh, each city 
was its own broadcast giant. And certainly New York, Philadelphia, and Chicago were uh, at the very beginning, as was L.A., and it's and it you know really they kind of lost their regional and national influence as the decades moved on. New York and L.A. still you know managed to hold on to it, and obviously so because of the things that are going on there with stage and uh, and the live TV and and broadcast TV on both coasts, and certainly the movie industry in in L.A. But uh, yeah, I, I can appreciate that, and again, I think. That New York vibe. I, are you going to try and get a guy like Namath? It, I, it's I loved. I just turned him on. Uh, I forget what uh, interview show he was just on, and he had a, f- a few memories of of Carson, both on the air and behind the scenes. It's possible. Yeah, I've been in talks about that possibly happening. I love to sit down with 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 Joe Namath. He guest hosted the show. He went on the show a bunch of times. And Sonny Warblin, who was Johnny's money man for a while, uh, I believe was the owner of, of his uh, the football team. That's right, the Jets, of, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, I'd really like to sit down with him. Hopefully it'll happen. Do you, um, I love some of the deals that Sonny Warblin ended up uh, getting for, uh, for Johnny. Things like uh, the Johnny Carson suit line and stuff yes. like that. Would your, would your interviews ever go in those directions? Oh, um, possibly. I bet talk, like if I talked to Joe Namath about 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 Warblin. Well, but I even mean more some of the some of the like just promoting Johnny, marketing Johnny as as <laughs> as they did in the seventies because he really was. Yeah. It was kind of it was he was not only a host but really was kind of one of these fashion plates for a I guess a lack of a better word where yeah his style and it's kind of funny to see it yeah. now but it was a plaid world. I mean, I, it, yes. so, they would sell his suits at Sears. I mean, he was a right. good businessman. And then he would do these investments that didn't really go anywhere, like uh, the John DeLorean, the car, yes. the DeLorean, which kind of didn't go well. But he definitely had all these endeavors like Vegas. He, I mean, he made so much money in Las Vegas. And he, uh, yeah, would invested in, in banks, I think, for a while in a TV studio. But a lot of times these things didn't go very well. Are there any mentioning Vegas? Uh, and, it, and it comes up a lot again in your podcast with some of your guests because some of his comedy writers would help him with his routine. Or you had uh, was it a dance act that was on uh, the bill with Johnny that would sometimes tour when he would do public appearances? Are there any film examples of his Vegas act? I've only seen photos. If, the, if, the, if there is, if there is anything that exists, I, I would love to see. I've never seen anything that I remember. I really want to see his closer. His closer. When he would tour, when he would play, most of the time would be a takeoff of a, of a children's television show, morning uh, show, called Deputy John, where the host, the kid's host, was hungover. And there would apparently be like lots of sound sound effects, and he would just play off of it. And I, I've just heard so much about it that I would be curious to see it. I'd really like to see it. And I heard that it just brought down the house when he did it. Yeah, you know, I, I know you grew up in Chicago, so yeah, we had Ray Rayner here in, in Chicago as that kind of morning host that oh, yeah. post the cartoons but also do news and weather and traffic and things like that uh so yeah i i, I agree with you no i think that i would love yeah. to see that routine he, sometime. ray rayner had the post had those little pieces of paper that would be attached to him on what he, what the next cartoon would be yep. and then when i was a kid you had ray rayner you had phil donahue was still at wgn right. and he was he was national and then I, I I remember Oprah when she was on AM Chicago right point. before she went national. So, I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I was really, really young. 
uh, I was a, I, I knew that I was into television, just uh, studying it from even when I was a kid. But it was really exciting back then to be in Chicago and then Bozo uh, with Bob Bell and then to Joey Diore. But it was a great time for Chicago broadcasting. As a Chicago kid, were you ever able to get on Bozo Circus? Did you ever get to go see the show? Oh, my goodness. The One of the greatest days of my childhood, third grade, I did get to go. It was, it was Frasier Thomas. He was uh, It was about six months before he passed away, and he was still there. Okay. And it was Joey Diorio had just taken over for Bob Bell. And I got to say, don't miss what's next on Bozo into the camera. They had a cue card for me, and I got to hold the mic. And then I got to play an obstacle course game, and I won 30 Slurpees from 7-Eleven <laughs> and Monopoly. <laughs> Booyah. That's fed 30 Slurpees. That's fantastic. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, it was. And then I got to meet Roy Brown and, and say hi to Joey Diorio, the two of them, after the tape. And it was, I mean, uh, people listening, it was something like an eight-year wait for tickets. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was the hardest thing, I mean, to get to, to get tickets to uh, Bozo Show. I mean, it was, I, I could recognize back then what a big deal that was. I still think about it to this day. Yeah, it was a, it was a massive thing. I was, uh, I got to go, and in fact, as we're taping the day before Halloween, it was around, it must have been around Halloween. It was 1969 or 1970, ouch, but uh, I was dressed as an astronaut. And because of that, and because the moon program and Apollo was so important back then, they, you know, they had kids in, you know, uh, just like you see now, cosplay at a comic convention or whatever. They had kids standing up and you know in their costumes and getting a camera shot with them. And Ray Rayner used to be Oliver O. Oliver, one of the uh, yes. one of the clowns. And Ray was dressed as Oliver, and he came in the stands and he said, "Okay, come with me." And I was like four or five, <laughs> so I really didn't know what was going on. And he just said, "All right, stand right here." And he said, "Now, when I tell you, you salute to me." And I'm like, "Okay." And he and he put up his hand, so I saluted and stuff and. My dad owned this uh, bar and grill in Chicago, and all the all the bar flies are laughing and watching me on TV. And yeah, that was my first big TV moment. So no, I know it's, uh, I know exactly what you mean. Su- such a big deal <laughs> for that show. I remember, I think Don Sandberg was on that show as well back in the day. Is he Sandy, I, Sandy the Clown. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, There's something about that show, and um, yeah, not much. Most of those shows were wiped as well, which yeah. is such a shame. Absolutely. George George Pappas at, at WGN, who's a great guy. Uh, produced. He was one of the producers, and they did a uh, a bozo special hosted by Dean Richards, and it is so oh, yeah. good. Oh yeah, it's it's a Chicago Christmas tradition, which I'm so pleased that they do rerun it because it does bring back so many memories. And I do think kids, little kids, think it's cute because of some of the old black and white cartoons that they would show. Like, and it is, it's a Christmas thing because they'll show Susie Snowflake, this little black and white uh, exactly. puppet thing, and Hard Rock, Hard Rock Coco and Joe. Uh, yeah, it's fun, and and it is. It's fun to see, and it is of uh, mostly footage of Bob Bell and Roy Clown around. But uh, there's some Joey in there as well, and Frazier. And yeah, Dean Richards does an excellent job hosting it. So uh, that's awesome that you're friends with the guy who produced it. It's a tremendous Chicago special. Very very cool. Too fun. Oh yeah, I, I I I'm a huge fan. And there's something about WGN. I've been able when I, I I rarely get to Chicago, but when I do, I like to stop by WGN and say hi and go into the old Bozo Studio and just kind of walk around. Oh, that's funny. You know, I literally live like walking distance from Bradley Place. Oh wow, where they, where they yeah, shoot. Th- absolutely, man. And also, I wondered because Bozo Circus was for people who didn't see it. Um, you people, I'm sure, are aware of Bozo the Clown, but it, it had circus acts on the show, and maybe you know better, but I assumed that um, Bradley Place, uh, GN's broadcast facility being so close to the old Riverview Amusement Park, um, I assumed that a lot of the boardwalk uh, circus acts that would play Riverview 
would literally walk the two blocks over to Bradley Place and do their act on the Bozo TV show. I never thought about it, but that makes sense. You know? that, that wouldn't make sense. I mean, they got – they really, really did get – um, amazing talent that would come on and that would that would that would do the acrobatics and and do other other routines and then occasionally you would have I didn't I, the Jackson Five cut do a walk on I know I know that uh, they would occasionally get celebrities that would do walk ons as well it was it was more rare but they definitely would get really talented people to to, to uh, as guests uh, musicians as well that would that would play bozo yeah it was pretty cool no it was it was a legitimately big deal and. When I when I was a little kid, it was a lunchtime show. It was a noon show, uh, and yeah, it was like I said. And also, what I always loved, they would play that uh, game, almost like beer pong, uh, but of course, no beer involved. The grand prize, the game. grand prize game. And then the the thing that I really did like about that show, it, it was live to tape. So like yes. I remember when we went there, when I was there, the grand prize game. Fraser Thomas got. He was announcing what the prize was for for one of them, and it was completely off. And all these laughs from the audience, and they just kept going. I mean, that was. There's something really charming. I was with Orson Bean in, in, in his home in, in, in Los Angeles, and his phone rang during the episode. He's like, Mark, keep it all in. Keep all the mistakes in. And that episode, I think we did. Normally, I would edit that stuff out. But for Orson Bean, he's like, no, this, this, this is what viewers uh, want. Because in a late night show these days, if anything like that happens, they almost always will edit the thing out. Everything has to be almost perfect. And there was something amazing about when Johnny would do the show if a comedy bit succeeded wildly or if it if it, if it didn't or same with Dave Letterman it was it either succeeded wildly or it didn't but there was when it didn't work there was some there was definitely a charm in it and Johnny and Dave were such good reactors that they could they could just make a bit yep. that didn't that wasn't the material wasn't working they could make it work just themselves and you don't see that much in late night no and uh, these days yeah you when Jim Fowler or uh, the woman from uh the San Diego Zoo would come. Joan Emery, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know they'd bring animals, and animals would kind of unfortunately you know, relieve themselves on poor Johnny's head or whatever. Or, uh, of course, the classic bit having nothing to do with animals uh, was, uh, and it's on YouTube. Was that great night uh, when it was uh, Dean Martin, Bob Hope, George Goebel all on the couch? Exactly. And and yeah, it was just you know free for all, and you know Dean Martin, Martin flicking his ash and George Goebel's drink, and George Goebel seemingly not knowing that. He's drinking Dean Martin's ashes, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, that kind of looseness. Um, and also, uh, you know, going back to Johnny taping in New York, it seemed like maybe that was the New York vibe more than the L.A. vibe in terms of uh, the show, that it was kind of maybe a looser show. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely, in terms of the booking, it, w- it was different. I felt it was a different vibe. They'd go out to California usually four times a, mm-hmm. a year and... You know, Fred DeCordova, from the moment he got the gig, was really trying to work on Johnny. And then Peter LaSalle's argument is they could get bigger, better guests, uh, bigger guests uh, if they they were in in L.A. And basically, the staff told me that it was just the writing was on the wall that it was going to happen. And it was uh, it was definitely I felt like a looseness with with the New York. And then once the show went from ninety minutes to sixty minutes, it became very different. A lot of people like Buck Henry, Gore Vidal. Yes. A lot of the intellectuals were were not on the show anymore. I, I, I really, really um, prefer when it was ninety minutes. I agree, and in fact, watching the syndicated show, I really look more forward to those ninety minute shows because of that. Calvin Trillin is another guy that would come on a lot, and and yeah, it's it's and he, that's true. That's when he would have the authors on, and you'd have that little book segment. The one, and in fact, I think I emailed you about this, and and also with the. Uh, new JFK uh, files being declassified 
as they were at the end of last week. Um, there's that amazing episode of Carson. I've only heard the audio of it, of him with um, the uh, Jim, Garrison. Yeah, Jim Garrison and kind of really debunking yeah. a lot of Jim Garrison's theories. And it's this it's it's not a funny conversation. It's a really pointed kind of, uh, you know, almost newsy discussion where it's like, Jim, I've read the Warren, you know, uh, commission's report. I've read your book and the two just just don't jive. What are you trying to get at with this thing? And he really is kind of a little antagonistic towards Garrison about what are you trying to get at with this thing? Johnny was very curious. He was an intellectual for sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. It's only audio that exists from this appearance, but this would happen. I mean, somebody recently emailed me about Frank Zappa going on with Carson in the mid 80s. And th- I don't think that there were any laughs in the interview. It was two segments. And, 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 and Johnny was just talking to Frank Zappa about lyrics being that were being banned. This is when they wanted labels on records yes. for, for yeah. you know, indecent ly- lyrics and things. Go on, please. And Johnny could have easily turned it into to uh, you know lots of laughs, but I mean he just was genuinely interested, and it was just this conversation where there didn't have to be a laugh every five seconds, and th- there were really weren't any laughs. And Carson was just really curious, and that is what the show could be. It was on a lot of different levels, and I like the shows now. I enjoy it, but it feels like for the most part, with the few exceptions, that there has to be a laugh, you know, every ten fifteen oh, seconds. Um, I definitely um, have enjoyed, though, I've seen some Stephen Colbert recently and some Seth Meyers where they are having some, you know, conversations where it doesn't feel like they're sticking to the talking points necessarily, the pre-interview, and it's more loose and having a real conversation. That's how I personally like those shows. I agree, and I think in both of those cases, they're trying to pull it back and have a more real conversation. And also, um, man, I really enjoyed hearing um, Fred Friendly's son on, on one of your recent oh, episodes. Oh, yeah. Because, Andy Friendly's right? Yeah, and, and, and his work with Tom Snyder, because Snyder is another one of those guys that was much more conversational and didn't want to go for the necessary laugh every 10 seconds, and you really felt like you got a much more in-depth interview on, on Snyder's Tomorrow Show, and then, of course, his uh, uh, 1230 show that uh, came after Letterman. Uh, I agree. I, I mean, yeah, Tom Snyder was... Uh, his show is very unique, and he had this really strong presence, and I loved Andy Friendly. He has a new book that's out right now, and he t- t- talks about Johnny Carson. He knew Johnny. He knew good friends with Johnny's son, Rick, and and, and Tom Snyder. And uh, yeah, I, I wasn't really sure Tom Snyder's process, but it was interesting that he did very little preparation. He just wanted to apparently hang out with the staff and then have a drink and smoke cigarettes <laughs> apparently that's yeah. i'm sure he did some prep but i don't know that worked for him well and again he came from news and i think maybe kind of felt comfortable enough at that point to interview you know uh you know uh off the cuff rather than be so prepared and it's certainly in your interview with with andy friendly it sounds like that's how he would approach each interview i wonder um because I really do think network television, because of the fact you do have to stop every six minutes for a commercial, um, it's hard to have a, a real conversation. I think, luckily, Carson showed that you could do it in that kind of regiment. But it seems like in today's TV world, uh, and also the short attention spans that I think music videos and other kind of quick television have kind of just subconsciously like messed with our uh, attention span but um, it does seem, luckily, and your show is, a, is an example of it, I try to do it on my podcast, that long form, thankfully, can exist 
online in uh, in venues like our shows and things like that and i i uh, and also netflix and things i i you know i i'm looking forward to seeing letterman on netflix as i sure i'm sure you are as well i am yeah i think he's doing something like six episodes i can't wait to see what what, what he does he's an amazing broadcaster i think bob costas is highly yes. underrated his show later with bob yes. costas there aren't a lot of episodes on youtube there are some oh my goodness yeah. does that hold up i mean he he was. I mean, if there was a podcast, I mean, to me, it you could it could easily exist if people wanted to take him and Paul McCartney or J- Jerry <laughs> Lewis or Dave Letterman and put it on iTunes. I mean, Costas was really, really good, and they they would they would film sometimes, you know, for an hour and then edit it down, and sometimes they they would do two episodes out of it. Yes. And um, yeah, I I I thought his show was was phenomenal. Oh, I, ha- I remember an episode where Richard Lewis literally had him curled in a ball in his in his chair, just crying, laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah and and no it got some of these uh he had uh, Jack Palance on and it, he was very uh, always t- I think a very tough interview when he would do a, a talk show and stuff and that guy that kind of got interesting and um no Costas is great and in fact so great and, and we were just talking about Joe Buck of course with being World Series season and I'm like you know it drove me nuts when HBO gave Joe Buck a similar show to Costas's and I'm like who the hell told HBO that Joe Buck is the next Bob Costas. Because no offense to Joe, he's a fine sportscaster, but Bob is an exceptional broadcaster who can really handle any subject and is, I think, intellectually curious enough in each subject that he just brings that innate ability to have a, a, a great interview conversation that can go into interesting places. Like Carson, he made it look really, really easy. Yeah. I remember on his HBO show, he would do this segment at the end where it was a mystery guest, and he literally did not know who the person was going to be that would walk out. And it could be Ron, Ronnie Dangerfield or Vince McMahon. I remember those two people, and you get his his genuine reaction. And it, he was just he could really sit down with almost anyone. I, I remember when Dennis Miller got his own late night show. Yes. And he was quoted as saying that he had no idea how hard it was going to be. And he said, you know, Johnny Carson, you never see him look at the cue cards and uh, just how hard it is. And then Johnny called Dennis Miller up privately and said, um, yeah, you see, it's not that easy. Because I, I just think a lot of, of people looked at what Carson did. And it, it wasn't necessarily a matter of being funny. You had to be likable and you had to pace yourself and have a skill set that very few people people could do and i think that that's why i mean you know the michael jordan tiger woods people that just made it look easy and carson was was one of those like meryl streep uh, johnny was one of those one of those rare people no you're right and honestly again thanks to youtube you can see some of the others that tried and failed spectacularly chevy chase and uh god you know it's so interesting and i can't wait i'm sure you've heard the same rumors as we wrap up that uh, Jerry Lewis's, uh, you know, amazing failure of a Saturday night talk show host is, I think, finally going to maybe make it to DVD. They were talking about it even before Lewis died that maybe he was finally going to put it out on DVD. But that mid-80s Jerry Lewis show, and by the way, Jerry Lewis, as you know, a great go-to host for shows like Carson's show and seemed to do so well. Well, they gave him this week, a uh, syndicated week, and again, all the episodes are on uh, on YouTube, it's a spectacular failure. I mean, it's just there's no there's no uh, direction to it. He just seems kind of uh, not focused, and and it's it's a little too loose. And it shows you what you know in contrast how great broadcasters like Carson were. Yeah, there was definitely the people that tried it that thought that they could do it. 
Uh, most people just, you know, I mean, Jerry Lewis, talented guy. Oh, yes. I mean, I, for, for a while, it just seemed like a lot of people were taking a stab. I mean, it's it's definitely um, it, there's definitely like I think Peter Lasalle said Shanlane was the he, that was was one of the the people that right away got it and how rare that was. But I, a lot of people like Peter and people at the tonight show told me the comedians, a lot of times, uh, were not the best guest host. And a lot of times, um, you know, Leno, Leno got really good. Leno was good as a guest host. He was a substitute guest host. Uh, Shanling was really good. But a lot of times when comedians would, would roll in, they did not necessarily make the best host. Yeah, I remember Newhart again, as a kid watching him substitute host was hit and miss. Cosby was hit and miss. Um, <laughs> Burt Reynolds could be really funny, everybody tells me. I've only seen a few times of him it. guest hosting, but people say that he was really funny when he, he would come in and guest host, really talented guy. I, I remember when Dave Letterman had his heart trouble, and uh, he had a lot of guest hosts, and everybody, the critics, loved Vince Vaughn, of all people. Vince Vaughn they loved. They loved Elvis Costello guest hosting. But sometimes with these people, um, yeah, you just never know who's going to make a good guest host and who, who, who's not. It's such a... Uh, an unnatural thing for these people to, that have never done a monologue before to go out it, to go out and do it. Yeah, well, and, and to carry a show, and again, have to direct the conversation, and also keep an eye on the fact that you've got to uh, you got to break and stuff. Because as as I think we mentioned, they would tape as if live. And again, having seen the Car- Carson show live, uh, it's a you know in between when uh, when they're coming into commercials and going out of commercials and stuff there's a lot of activity on that on that broadcast stage and the the producer kind of whispering notes and we're going to do this it's and, true. and get ready so yeah it's it was it was fascinating to watch and fascinating to learn on your podcast when when you talk to these people honestly congratulations on such a great show and uh i uh as we as we wrap up who are your white whales that you're you're still pursuing do you have a easy list oh. to Thank you for asking. I, I like to think big. I mean, I would love to have Bette Midler on. I'd love sure. to have Doc Severinsen, oh, Dave Letterman. Seinfeld would be incredible. Bob Newhart, Burt Reynolds, Bob Euchre. Uh, I, I, I'm sure, I mean, I, I have a long list of, of people that I would love to sit da- down with. We'll see what happens. I mean, Barbara Streisand used to go on a lot in the 60s. Yeah. I know she, she just did Alec Baldwin's podcast, I which too. I am not Alec Baldwin. But uh, yeah, I have a long long list and i just present my request and i really wanted harry belafonte on because he did the whole guest week uh he guest hosted a whole week and had martin luther king on and robert kennedy i haven't been able to get him on uh yet but uh i persist uh, polite persistence and we shall see is this leading to a book oh thanks for asking i i don't know uh I've, it's been suggested i've thought about it i did pursue the possibility at one point but as of now nothing is happening uh, that could change. I I I am definitely uh, I'm definitely open to the idea of of doing it. I can't believe uh, that I've been able to do this many episodes and uh, that so many nice people have agreed to not only be on the podcast, people that I never imagined uh, would talk to me and would sit down with me, but just how so many incredible supportive people such as yourself have have followed my journey and that listened to this and that reach out to me and that shared the, the enthusiasm and the passion and uh yeah it's definitely just been this gift that i've been able to do that the podcast keep it up man continued success because uh as as a fan and as someone else who who generates uh content and, and interview content i i like this kind of programming i can tell you do as well mentioning things like alec baldwin's here's the thing and uh, some of the other really good interview podcasts out there there are never enough 
and we need this kind of, I think, uh, interesting, informative conversation uh, alongside the uh, hamster playing the piano or everybody's favorite <laughs> kitty video or whatever. And, you know, that's fine. But I'm a big fan <laughs> of long – I'm a big fan of long foreign content. So the, Car- the, the Carson podcast continues. Uh, they release new episodes every Thursday uh, hosted by uh, Mark Malkoff. And, uh, man, I can't thank you for coming on enough. Uh, and uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. John, thanks for the kind invite. I really, really enjoyed this. Mark Malkoff. Check out the Carson podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. And I'm telling you, what a list of amazing guests that he has on all the time, both, again, celebrities and amazing behind-the-scenes people as well. So you can find the Carson podcast where you find podcasts normally, iTunes, everywhere else. So thanks again, Mark, and hope you enjoyed today's episode of Word Balloon. Brought to you again by uh, the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support via Patreon. If you'd like to subscribe to the Word Balloon podcast, go to patreon.com slash wordballoon or wordballoon.com. Click on the Patreon ad, and that will take you to our Patreon page. Thanks again for listening. Questions or comments about the show, you can reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.